We're going to read now from Ephesians, just a a very short section uh, at the end of the letter, picking up at verse 21, just the last little uh, section there, which concludes the letter. So Ephesians 6 and from verse 21, Paul says there, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, these words that we turn to now, and we thank you for all of your love towards us. And we've just been reminded in that beautiful hymn that we are so very dear to you, more dear we could not be, because the love with which you love your son, uh, such is your love towards us, love that will never end. And we pray that you would assure us of this wonderful love as we turn to these verses now and hear your word. Bless us, use me as well, I pray, for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the conclusion of this sermon series in which we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And what an incredible letter it is. As I've mentioned beforehand, this is in fact the most preached book in the whole Bible. And I hope that we've all benefited from listening to Paul's wonderful teaching in this letter over these past few months. And we come today to these two very, very short paragraphs just at the end of the letter. And we'll notice that in the first paragraph, uh, Paul speaks about the benefits of fellowship. And then in the second paragraph, he speaks about the blessings of the gospel the benefits of fellowship, and the blessings of the gospel. So let's look at that first paragraph to start with, the benefits of fellowship there in verses 21 and 22. And as we come to these verses, we need to remember that the Apostle Paul had a very close, very personal connection with this Ephesian congregation. To put that into context, Uh, For example, when Paul went to Thessalonica, he spent only about three weeks there. And in contrast to that, when he went to Ephesus, he spent about three years there. And in those three years, Paul poured everything he had into the work in Ephesus. As he puts it himself, he did not shrink from declaring to them anything that was profitable. 
and teaching them in public and from house to house. And he declared to them the whole counsel of God. And Acts chapter 20 tells us the story of Paul's very painful, emotional, tearful farewell when he eventually moved on from Ephesus. He loved these people deeply. And they loved him in return. And so how will Paul sign off the letter to these beloved brothers and sisters in Christ that he'd spent three years living alongside? Well, you'd imagine, wouldn't you, that Paul would have a lot of personal greetings to share with this congregation in Ephesus. It's been about five or six years, maybe, since he's seen most of them. And surely he's got a lot that he wants to say to the the individuals in that congregation. How is so-and-so doing? What about Mr. and Mrs. such-and-such and their lovely children? What age are they now? How are they doing? Say hello to this person for me. Let them know that I'm keeping on praying for them. After all, that is how Paul finishes most of his letters, isn't it? He usually finishes with a, a section of personal greetings. And in those personal greetings, he mentions a number of people in the church by name. He gets very specific into the personal details of the members of that congregation. And that is why it's so strange in some ways that in this letter to the Ephesian church of all churches, that Paul doesn't mention any of their members by name at all. He spent three years there. And so that should surprise us. Why is there no section of personal greetings here? Why is that missing from this letter? And the answer, of course, is that instead of sending a, a paragraph of greetings, Paul sent a person. Paul would have, of course, loved to have gone and visited these people himself, but obviously he can't do that. He's in prison. He's in Rome. And so instead, he does the next best thing. And he sends this man, Tychicus. He describes him as the beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. This man was one of Paul's most valuable co-workers. It's quite likely, in fact, that Tychicus was actually from Ephesus himself originally. And so like Paul, he knew the church there very well. And they knew him. And that's why when Paul needed to send someone to Ephesus, on at least two different occasions actually, he sent this individual, Tychicus. He's the obvious choice. He he knows the area. He knows the way there very well. And he's familiar with the congregation. He knows most of the members there. He knows their particular needs. He knows the situations that they're going through. He, He knows the family networks. And so Paul asks Tychicus to be the one who takes this letter to them. And that, you see, explains why there are no personal greetings at the end of this letter. Because Tychicus is their personal greeting from Paul. Which is far better than simply writing a paragraph at the end of the letter. Paul knows that what this church really needs is fellowship. 
And to that end, he sends Tychicus to provide them with some much-needed fellowship on his behalf. And as Tychicus visits those old friends in Ephesus, and as he renews fellowship with them, he is going to bring all of Paul's personal greetings to the individual members of the congregation. And Paul says that through renewing their fellowship with Tychicus in this way, the church is going to come to enjoy two particular benefits. And first of all, their fellowship with Tychicus will inform their prayers. Fellowship informs our prayers. Now we need to read verse 21 in conjunction with verses 19 and 20, what Paul has just been saying immediately beforehand. Paul has just been requesting that they pray for him in his ministry. He says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. See, those verses belong together. Through this renewed fellowship, face-to-face with Tychicus, the Ephesians will have their prayers informed so that they can pray more accurately, more specifically for Paul in his ministry. And as Tychicus visits them and spends time amongst them and goes around the the houses and worships with them on the the Sunday, he's going to take those prayer requests of verses 19 and 20 and he's going to put the flesh on the bones. He's going to tell them in much more detail what Paul is up to, how his ministry is going, how he's feeling, what particular challenges he's facing, what ministry opportunities lie before him. It is always helpful, isn't it, to receive a a prayer letter from an overseas missionary. And in those prayer letters, you you find out about how to pray for these people. And yet what is better by far than receiving a prayer letter are those occasions when a missionary is able to visit us and come in person and give an update in person. And on those Wednesday evenings or on those Sundays when that happens, through face-to-face fellowship, we get to strengthen our bonds with mission partners. We get to learn so much more about the everyday realities that they're facing. And as a result of that, we can then pray much more specifically, much more comprehensively about their ministry in the future. It's exactly the same principle at work here, isn't it? This visit of Tychicus and that time of renewed fellowship is going to inform the prayers of the Ephesian congregation. Now, of course, this principle doesn't just apply to a visit from a missionary. No, it applies, doesn't it, to all of our fellowship together as the church. And as we spend time together as Christians sharing face-to-face fellowship with one another. That strengthens our bonds between us. Uh, We learn more about what each other are going through. It helps us to pray for one another much more specifically, doesn't it? Fellowship informs our prayers. 
That's the first benefit that Paul mentions here about the fellowship. It informs our prayers. And then the second benefit is that fellowship encourages our hearts. Fellowship encourages our hearts. And so Tychicus, when he visits Ephesus, will be given this task not only of sharing more detailed prayer requests, more detailed updates about Paul and what he's doing, but also for this second purpose, which Paul highlights in verse 22. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul knows that the Ephesian congregation doesn't have it easy. After all, Paul was there when that city was almost overrun by a riot because of the fact that the gospel was being preached there. Paul knew this city well, having spent three years there. He knew that idolatry and immorality was rife in that great city. He knew the church was faced with trials and temptations on every side. The society around them was extremely hostile to them. And just to keep going as Christians, they would need a lot of encouragement. And this is the second reason why Tychicus, in particular, was a good man to choose for this visit. Not only was he beloved, a beloved brother who knew them, but also he was a faithful minister in the Lord. And as he came to Ephesus, he would be able to get alongside the believers there. And he could teach them. He could train them. He could spur them on. He would encourage their hearts to keep going in their Christian lives, no matter how difficult they were finding it. And like those believers in Ephesus, we need all the help we can get to keep going as Christians, don't we? We live in a hostile world. As Paul has been speaking about in the verses preceding this, the enemy is against us. And perhaps at the moment, you find that you're struggling to keep going as a Christian. And you're discouraged or you're tempted or you're being opposed in some way for being a Christian. And you see, one of the means that God in his grace and mercy and wisdom provides in order for us to keep going is the fellowship of other believers in the church family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. People like Tychicus, people who you can meet with Sunday by Sunday, and they spur you along, they encourage your hearts. It's one of the means that God uses to keep us going as Christians. And God never intended you to live the Christian life in isolation, just doing it all on your own. No, for very good reasons, he places us in the church so that we're surrounded with the encouragement of Christian fellowship. Make sure you make the most of those benefits of fellowship. One of the things that the early church in Jerusalem was commended for in Acts chapter 2 was the fact that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They met together day by day they met corporately for worship. And as well as that, they met in each other's homes as well. They lived life alongside one another. They helped one another. They supported one another in whatever ways they could. Well, we would do well to follow that example. And the more you devote yourself to fellowship, the more it will inform your prayers and the more it will encourage your heart. 
These are just two of the benefits of fellowship that Paul wanted these Ephesians to receive through this personal visit of their beloved brother, Tychicus. And you can take these things and you can apply them to your own life as well, can't you? Consider this, which Christian can you pray for this week in a specific way as a result of sharing fellowship with them? As a result of getting alongside them, asking them how they're really doing, finding out about their circumstances and letting those things inform your prayers for that person? And which Christian can you get alongside this week and and try and encourage their heart? You know that they're getting it tight. How can you encourage them? How can you build them up in their Christian life? Well, that brings us then to the, the final little paragraph right at the end of the letter. Paul pronounces this benediction, this blessing on the church, and it focuses on the blessings of the gospel. And in this benediction, there are four key words the words which Paul takes from the rest of the letter as a whole, and he, he gathers them together here as a summary, really, of, of what he's been saying throughout this letter. The first key word is peace. Peace. Now, back in verse 15, Paul has defined the gospel as the gospel of peace. And he calls it that because only through the gospel can we be at peace with God. Our natural condition is that we're at war with God. Remember those dark words from the start of chapter 2 in which Paul described what we're all like by nature. He said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, by nature, we're at war with God, because by nature, we're sinners. And by his unchangeable nature, he is holy, he is perfect, he's righteous. And the gospel is the gospel of peace, because through Jesus, and because of what he has done in his life and death and resurrection, We're forgiven of all of our sin and we are reconciled to God forever. As Paul puts it in chapter 1, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ, we are now at peace with God forever. Then there's a, a second reason why the gospel is the gospel of peace. Not only has Jesus brought us into a state of peace with God, but also he's brought us into a state of peace with one another. That was Paul's focus in the second half of chapter 2, wasn't it? The church in Ephesus was a, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Two very different cultural and religious communities that would never normally mix with one another, very often they would be hostile towards one another. And yet in Christ, they were brought together at peace with one another. And so Paul says, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What a wonderful thing it is that through the good news of Jesus, and only through the good news of Jesus, people like us can have peace with God, and peace with one another. It's for that reason that Paul said at the start of chapter 4, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then the second key word in this benediction is the word love. Peace be to the brothers and love. And the love that Paul has in mind here is not their love for God or their love for one another. Rather, he's speaking here of God's love towards them. And again, Paul has had a lot to say in this letter about God's amazing love for his people. Right at the start of the letter, Paul told us that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This love of, of God, says Paul, is truly amazing, even before the foundation of the world. You know, the greatest assurance that you can have as a Christian that there will never be a moment when God's love for you stops is because there was never a moment when God's love for you started. Even before the foundation of the world, in the, the hidden recesses of eternity past, God had set his saving, adopting love upon you, chosen in Christ predestined in love, loved before the dawn of time, chosen by your maker, hidden in your saviour. You are his and he is yours, cherished for eternity. And this adopting love of God the Father that existed in eternity was then demonstrated at Calvary by God the Son incarnate. And then was poured into your heart by God the Holy Spirit at your conversion. And it has been Paul's prayer for these Ephesians that they would come to know more and more about these unfathomable dimensions of this incomparable love of God towards them. In chapter 3, his prayer was that being rooted in ground and grounded in love, they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then the third key word in this benediction is faith. That's where Paul goes next, isn't it? Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. How is this love of Christ received by a person? Well, Paul is very clear that it's received through faith. And so we should ask, well, what is faith then? Faith is receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ 
as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith is self-abandoning trust in Jesus. Faith is looking away from your own puny, hopeless, sin-riddled efforts at trying to be good enough for God. And instead, putting all your confidence, all your trust in Jesus and what he has done in his perfect life and in his death and in his resurrection so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God forevermore. And there are a lot of places in this letter where Paul talks about faith. Maybe the key passage is found in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says there, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me ask you, where have you placed your confidence, your trust before God? If God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What grounds should I let you in? How would you respond to that question? Or would you say, well, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I, I have tried my best to live a good life and to keep to the Ten Commandments and to be a good Christian. Well, let me say that that is still putting your trust, your confidence in your works. That's not saving faith. Faith is self-abandoning trust in Jesus. Faith is relying on Jesus and what he has done, not relying on yourself and what you have done. Because you've fallen a million miles short, and so have I. Receive and rest upon Jesus alone for salvation, as he's offered to you in the gospel. And Paul says that all of these things, peace with God, the love of God and faith in Jesus, they all come to us freely as a gift. And where does this come from, this wonderful gift of, of these things? Well, Paul says it's all a gift from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that this is all a gift, a free gift, leads us to the fourth and the final key word in this benediction, which is inevitably Grace. Grace. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved kindness and mercy shown towards unworthy sinners. And every blessing that we receive is therefore all of God's grace. We deserve none of it. By God's grace alone we're saved. By grace alone we're chosen in Christ. By grace alone we're redeemed by his blood. By grace alone we're forgiven of all of our sin. By grace alone we're adopted as God's children. By grace alone we're transformed by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus. By grace alone we're equipped with gifts to serve him. And by grace alone we're ultimately brought safely home to glory. You see, it's all grace from eternity past until everlasting glory in the coming ages. All of grace. And so Paul says as he closes this letter, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. It's a lovely 
last line of the letter, isn't it? As we've seen already, in his grace towards us, God's love towards us will never end. And yet Paul is is flipping this round here, isn't he? He's saying that as well as that, by God's grace, our love for him will never end either. That's what he means there by love incorruptible. Those who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible, love that is never going to perish. Love for Jesus that is never going to shrivel up and die. And if you're a Christian then, today, by God's grace alone, you love Jesus. By his grace alone today, you love Jesus. Let me tell you that 10 million years from now, mark my words, you will love him still. And you will do so perfectly. World without end. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for all the blessings that have been poured out upon us in Christ by your grace. You've blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we praise you now for all the blessings of the gospel. We praise you for the peace that we enjoy with you through the cross of Christ, who has suffered all the divine condemnation we deserve for every sin. And by his death, he has redeemed us. We're forgiven. We're reconciled to you. And we praise you for your never-ending love for us, by which you chose us in eternity and have adopted us into your family forevermore. And we thank you that in your good timing, you gave us the gift of faith so that we could look beyond our hopelessness and our helplessness and we could put our trust in Jesus alone to save us by grace alone from start to finish. We thank you for your amazing grace and all of the praise for it belongs to you. And so we give you our worship and our adoration in Jesus' name. Amen.